All right. Good morning. My name is Mario. I'm the other pastor here. And this morning we are finishing up our series that we've been in for, well, this is now the fourth week, Life, Death, Resurrection, Ascension. We talked about why does the life of Christ matter? We talked about why does the, why did the death of Christ matter? Last week on Easter, why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter? And today we uh, move on to the topic of the ascension. And I think in some ways this might be one of the most interesting ones of the whole series because this is not a topic that's talked about a whole lot. Um, and maybe some of you have been a part of churches or groups that have talked about this a lot, but um, I don't think a lot of us have. In fact, I think I was talking to somebody, I think it was right here on the first week of the series, and they, and I, they said, you know, what's this? And I said, life, death, resurrection, ascension. And they said, oh, it'll be good to learn about those things. And, and somehow as we were talking, it was like, oh, ascension, hmm, that's going to be interesting. Like, I don't ever hear anybody preach on the ascension, and I, and I don't either. In fact, I hardly have. I looked back this week to see how many times I had preached on the Ascension in the past 10 years at this church. And I think the answer is once. I preached on the Ascension one other time. So I am about to double the number of sermons <laughs> that I have preached on the Ascension. Um, and it is just, it's something that preachers don't preach on a whole lot. And yet I think you'll see that it is something we need to know. It's very important. And so um, what we're going to do today is we're going to there's like two parts to the sermon. The first part is just the story. We're going to look at the story of the ascension. What does the Bible say happened on that day? And then the second part of the sermon is going to be, why does the ascension matter? Okay. So let's start with the story. And in order to start the story right, I think I want to start all the way at the beginning. And so I'm going to start reading to you from Luke chapter one, verse one. Luke is the person who we know almost all of the information that we know about the ascension and what happened. We know from Luke. And so Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to read to you the first four verses. I want you to pay attention to how he opens up his, his narrative, his story about Jesus. He says, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, I want you to pay attention to that name, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. That's the first paragraph of the Gospel of Luke. Luke starts off his book by saying, all right, I'm about to tell you a story. This is a story that I personally investigated. I looked into it, talked to the eyewitnesses, and compiled all of these accounts so I can tell you this is what happened. This is the story of Jesus. This is what happened when he was on this earth. I investigated it, and I'm giving it to you, Theophilus. Theophilus would be the name of the guy that Luke wrote the book of Luke to, or wrote the book of Luke for. He said, I investigated everything. This is what happened when Jesus was on this earth. And so he gives it to this guy named Theophilus. And I'm glad he did, because now we have it. So that's, that's how the story begins. So you've got... I investigated the, the story of Jesus. Here it is, Theophilus. That's the first paragraph. And then Luke gives pages and pages and pages on the life of Jesus and what he did and what he said and the miracles he performed and the teachings that he did. And then you get to the end of the story where Jesus dies on the cross. That's recorded in there. He rises again. That's recorded in there. After he rises again, there's the story um, that we looked at last week, remember, where he ate the fish in front of them? And then after all of that, he ends with this thing that we call the ascension. So I just read you the first paragraph of the book of Luke. I am now going to read you the last paragraph of the book of Luke. This is how he ends the story that he gives to Theophilus. This is what happened with Jesus, and here's the end of the story. Luke 24, verse 50. 
Then he led them out, the he there is Jesus. He led them out as far as Bethany. That's a city, by the way, not a woman. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried into heaven. Which that's it, by the way. In the Gospel of Luke, that's the ascension. He was carried up into heaven. That's the whole, that's all the description we get right there is he was carried up into heaven in front of them. They watched him go up into heaven. We got no more details than that. The next two sentences, which are the last two sentences of Luke, say, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were, content, and they were continually in the temple complex praising God. Which there's a little point for us right there. The reaction to the ascension is worship. They were there with Jesus as far out as Bethany, he blessed them, he ascended to heaven, and they worshipped him. That's the reaction to the ascension. They worshipped him. And that's how Luke ends his gospel. All this stuff about Jesus, and then he was carried up into heaven. The end. Now, we know some more information about the ascension than just that, though. And the reason we know more than that is because there was a sequel to the book of Luke. Did you know that? Yes, maybe some of you might not have known that there are books of the Bible that have sequels, but there is at least one that has a sequel, um, and that it, well, some of it's probably really obvious, First and Second Chronicles, I guess you can really figure it out, but um, Luke does not have a first or second in front of his, and yet there's a sequel, okay? What's the sequel to the book of Luke? Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. How do you know it's a sequel, okay? Because, well, I'm about to show it to you when I read to you the beginning of Acts, you're going to see that Acts picks up, same author, talking to the same guy, and picks up right where he left off. And what he does, what Luke does with the ascension is interesting. He does what a lot of modern day movies and TV shows do when they have it to be continued or when they have a first movie and then a second movie. And that is, you know, sometimes you watch these two-parters and the final scene of the first one is the first scene of the second one. That's what Luke does. We get the ascension again at the beginning of Acts. And in fact, sometimes if you watch some shows, the final scene is just real quick in the one. And then in the second movie, you find out more about that final scene because it kind of continues on. You're like, oh, that's what happened. Okay, and so that's what happens. So if you just go to Acts chapter 1, I want you to notice how it begins. Acts 1.1, Luke is still writing, and he says, I wrote the first narrative. What's the first narrative? Luke, good. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Who's that guy? It's the same guy, right? He's writing a second thing to the same guy. I wrote you the first story that we now call Luke. I don't know what Theophilus called it back then. But I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Remember, that was the first one. And so now I am introducing, this is my first paragraph of the second movie, okay? This is my first paragraph of the second book. I wrote to you the first one, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until when? Until the day he was taken up, to which Theophilus would go, yeah, I remember, I read that one, right? I read that one where you went all the way up to the point where he was taken up, and that's where the story ended. Yeah, that's what I wrote all the way up to the point he was taken up. Now we pick up from there. <clears throat> so until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. <clears throat> after he had suffered, that's that he wrote about that in the book of Luke, right? That he died on the cross. He also presented himself alive to them. Also back from the book of Luke, right? When he rose again. He presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. One of them is the fish story that we looked at last week. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we now know the time period between the resurrection and the ascension was about 40 days. Then there's a conversation between the disciples and Jesus where they're wondering if he is going to restore Israel and do these kind of uh, bringing about the kingdom of God um, on earth. 
And, and so they, they ask him, is, is now the time? Like, you came, you died, you rose again, so is that what's next? And he says, it's not for you to know if that's what's next or not. But then he says in verse 8, but you will, and I'm just going to pick up in the middle of the sentence, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Very famous verse. Now, here's the next one. After he said this, which in, in Luke's account, we didn't even know what he said, right? It just says he blessed them, and then he ascended into heaven, right? He, he was taken up into heaven. Well, now we know some of the specific things he said at, on that occasion. After he said this, he was taken up. Yep, just that's the same way Luke ended. He was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they were watching, and his body physically rose and rose and rose and rose until one day, at one point, there was a, a cloud that obscured them from being able to see any higher. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes, by the way, that's Luke's way of saying angels. We know that from the first book. Suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come, come back, in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So we get quite a bit more details there at the beginning of the book of Acts. And you take Luke and Acts together, and that makes up almost everything we know about the ascension, as far as the story that happened that day. All of the facts we have are from Luke. The fact that it, we know that it happened in Bethany. The fact that we know it was his physical body that went up. The fact that we know that it was 40 days after his, erect, uh, after his resurrection. All of that stuff we know um, from Luke's account. All right? The early church must have been familiar with this account. The 40 days later, and then he ascended to heaven, and, and all of this. They must have been familiar with the account of the ascension. Because if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you'll notice that the rest of the New Testament refers back to the ascension. Many times, many times in the writings of the rest of the New Testament, there are references back to the ascension or things that are the result of the ascension, like Jesus is in heaven sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But they don't explain how it happened. They don't explain the details. So many times there's just a reference back to the ascension, like, well, you all know what that happened, right? And so it's good that we have Luke, because we now know they apparently were very familiar with this story. And so you'll see, like in 1 Timothy, when Paul is talking, Paul writes this little creed out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it says, it's about Jesus. It says, Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and what? Taken up in glory. And that's all he says, just taken up in glory. What does that mean, taken up in glory? It seems to me that Paul just assumed, you know, that story, that story from Luke. Like, I guess everybody knew it. And so they just refer, he was taken up in glory. Peter does the same thing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. He says, now that he has gone into heaven, no story about it, right? Peter just assumes, you know, you know he went into heaven, right? Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So we have lots of references backwards to the ascension without explaining the details of it. And so what I'm letting you know is this. Without the book of Luke, without Acts, like without the writings of Luke, we would know that the ascension happened, but we would not know any of the details of it, okay? So praise God for Luke. So we know what happened to the ascension, and then we know lots of times where it's referred back to. So that is the story. That's the story of Jesus ascending to heaven. So what I want to do now for the rest of the sermon is I want to answer the question, why does the, why does the ascension matter? That story, Jesus ascending into heaven, and the angels saying, ooh, he's going to come back the same way that he went left. Why does that matter for us? 
And I sat down this week and was trying to think of reasons why the ascension matters. And I came up with 10, okay? 10 reasons that the ascension matters. Some of them I found, I Googled online and found some, but before I ever Googled, I just sat there with my yellow pad and just tried to write out all of the things I could think of. And so I got, I got a whole bunch. 10 reasons why the ascension matters, all right? This is going to be a 10-point sermon, all right? And I, I haven't done a 10-point sermon in a while, okay? In fact, I, I don't know if I've ever done a 10-point sermon ever. This might be the first, so, and maybe the last. We'll see. I'm never, I don't think I've done a 10-point sermon. If I have, it's been quite some time. And, but I will let you know I am aware <clears throat> that if you do a 10-point sermon, you've you got to get through them quick. Okay, I know. <clears throat> So we'll spend a little bit of time going through each one, but I want to give you today, I want to give you 10 reasons why the ascension matters, starting with verse 1. And in fact, we have them up here. Here it is. Reason number one why the ascension matters. It explains why Jesus isn't here anymore. This is a very basic one, but important. The ascension matters because it explains to us why Jesus isn't here anymore. Oh, thank you. I was clearing my throat and you cared. That's wonderful. 100 points I give you. They're redeemable for nothing, but still, <laughs> you, you have my respect. Um, it explains why Jesus isn't here anymore. So, if, we did, if there were no ascension, I think we'd still be looking for him, right? If Jesus lived and then died and then rose again, and he rose again in a glorious resurrection body that will never die again then we'd be looking for him now, right? He'd be like one of those characters in a sci-fi movie that never dies or lives for hundreds of years or thousands of years. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's vampire movies or um, I think Lost had a character like this. I think it's a, probably real common in like sci-fi stuff um, where there's someone that's just lived for hundreds of years and they show it to you. You know what I'm talking about? Like there'll be a character that they appear to be like 30 years old and they're modern day, like standing next to a refrigerator with a cell phone in their hand. And then there'll be a flashback scene that goes back like 200 years. And you see it's like the 1800s and everything's in sepia tones, I guess because that's what color everything was back then. And, and then there's the, the, the guy is on the stagecoach and he's whipping these horses and he's going through the Wild West and then the camera pans to the guy's face and you see oh, it's the same, he, st- he still looks 30, right? And it's the same 30-year-old that was standing next to the refrigerator with the cell phone in his hand and the other thing. You go, oh, he's been alive for hundreds of years. He's never aged. You know what I'm talking about, those scenes? Okay, I think if it weren't for the ascension, we'd be doing that with Jesus, We'd be, we'd be going, well, where is he now? There's this 30-year-old guy somewhere around. We've got to find him, right? The ascension is the reason we're not looking for him anymore. It's the reason he's not here. Why were the appearances of Jesus, as recorded by Luke, why did they last for just 40 days and then no more? Because he lived for 40 more days after he rose again, and then he ascended to heaven, right? Number two, it explains where Jesus is now. So not only explains why Jesus isn't here anymore, but explains where he is now. Where is he now? He is in heaven. Multiple verses in the New Testament talk about this, that he is in heaven now. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's standing next to God the Father. Um, So Jesus is in heaven now. Number three, it demonstrates God's power. The ascension demonstrates God's power. Why would I say that? Because Ephesians says that. So let me just go ahead and read it to you. Ephesians chapter... 1, verse 20, says this. He demonstrated this power, the he in that verse is God, and the this power is a reference to the verse before it that talked about the immeasurable greatness of his power. Okay, so God has immeasurably great power, and he demonstrated this power, according to Paul, now look at this, in the Messiah, 
by, here's the first one, by raising him from the dead. That makes sense. We would think that that is a way that God showed his power, by raising Jesus from the dead. But look, there's a second thing. By raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. The resurrection and the ascension are, the demonst- are demonstrations of God's power. Right, number four. It implies that Jesus has finished his job. The ascension implies Jesus has finished his job. Why is he not here on earth anymore? Because he did what he intended to do while he was on this earth. His job is done. He is not here because there's nothing more for him to do here now. Jesus has finished his job. For this, I read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Talking about Jesus, it says, But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. After he did what he came here to do, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, and he's now waiting. He did what he came to do. He's now there waiting. He's waiting for what? He's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He's waiting for all of his enemies to be fully and finally under his feet, defeated forever. And 1 Corinthians says the final enemy is death. And so death is going to end at the resurrection. When Jesus comes back and ends death forever, that will be finally when every single last enemy is made under his footstool, when everything that is against Christ is gone. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So he has finished his job. Number five. And this is going to look like it contradicts, but I don't think it does. So we've said, number four, it implies that Jesus has finished his job. But then number five, it shows in another sense that Jesus has not finished his job since he is still working even while he's up there. So Jesus has finished his job in the sense of he did what he needed to do on earth. But there's another sense in which he has not finished his job because he's still doing things right now in heaven. And maybe we wouldn't know that because there are some of the verses that say things like he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, which sitting just sounds like not doing anything, right? But in the, back then, sitting at the right hand of God the Father is talking about a position of authority, not literally being motionless, right? Um, so we've got these verses that say he's sitting or he's waiting, and it's probably easy for us to think he's just up there not doing much of anything. But he's not. He is still doing things even now from heaven. And two of the things he's doing, I don't know, maybe he's doing a lot of things, but two of the things that he's doing is he is reigning and he is interceding. He is a king who is ruling right now, and he is interceding for his people. So I just want to show you these two things. So he's done with his job on earth, but he's not doing nothing now. So first, he is reigning. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, same verse I was just looking at. I'll just read a little farther this time. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given. He is higher than everybody. He outranks everybody, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet, right, in his authority, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. And so we see this um, throughout the Bible. I think 1 Corinthians does this as well, too, saying he must rule or he must reign until his enemies are made his footstool. And so he is reigning right now. Another thing that he is doing is he is interceding right now. That Jesus is up in heaven right now interceding for people like me and you. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says this. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God. Let me just pause right there and let you notice this is the series that we are in, right? Christ Jesus is the one who died, death, but even more has been raised, resurrection. He is also at the right hand of God, ascension, What's he doing up there, ascended, and intercedes for us? The word intercedes means to intervene on behalf of someone else 
or to advocate for someone else. If you, to, to intercede for someone is to get into a, a problem that's not really your own and, and to support, to advocate, to help, to intervene on behalf of the helpless one who needs your help. And so Jesus is interceding for us when it comes to dealing with our sins before a holy God. He is the one who has intervened to help. He is the one who advocates for us. He is on our side. He is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Hebrews 7, verse 23 through 24, pretty much say the same thing, but in a different way. Hebrews 7, 23 says, Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented from death by remaining in office. It goes on to talk about Jesus, but let me just cover that verse real quick. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented from death from remaining in office. That sentence, the writer was saying, basically, the reason why there were so many priests back in the Old Testament okay, is because they kept dying, right? Many have become priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. So if you have a thousand-year time period and there's a whole bunch of priests, why were there so many? Because they kept dying and had to get replaced with a new guy who's alive. And then the new guy who's alive eventually dies and they got to replace him. So there were a whole bunch of priests because they kept dying. He says that because now the next sentence he's talking about a priest who does not die. So he says, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he, the topic of the whole thing is Jesus, because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. His priesthood lasts forever because he lasts forever. Okay, well, what's so good about that? The next verse. Therefore, because he does not die, because he's up in heaven, a, a forever priest rather than just a for a few years priest, He holds his priesthood permanently, therefore he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to what? Intercede for them. So notice, he's saying right now, Jesus is in heaven, and he always is able to save, present tense, those who come to God through him, since he always lives, present tense, to intercede, present tense, for them. How cool is that? that Jesus is presently interceding for us. Isn't that great? Like there is a sense in which we can say Jesus saved us, right? Like in the past, there's a sense in which we we can say he saved us, but there's a sense in which we can say he is saving people right now. He's saving us now. He didn't just save people 2,000 years ago. I think he saved some people yesterday. I think he's going to save some people tomorrow. He's not done. All right, number six. It shows that Jesus is exalted and entered into his glory. When Jesus was walking along with those two disciples that we talked last week on that seven-mile trip to Emmaus, and they didn't know that they were walking with him, and he was talking with them about the Old Testament, and one of the points that why he was talking to them about the Old Testament, he asked them this question. He said, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That isn't this what the Old Testament said, that the, the Messiah had to suffer, right? He had to die. But it's not just that. He said, and enter into his glory. What is that referring to, that the Messiah must enter into his glory? I mean, it could be referring to his resurrection and his glorious body, but I think it would include entering into his glory, seated at the right hand of God the Father forever. That, the verse that we looked at earlier from 1 Timothy similarly says this. 1 Timothy 3.16, that little creed, it says, he's preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in Glory taken up in glory. And so because the Messiah was to suffer and then to be exalted back to his glorious position as he should be, Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says it this way, he, Jesus, humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And so the ascension shows that Jesus is exalted right now, entered into his glory. Number seven, the ascension needed to happen so that Jesus could give us the Holy Spirit. The ascension needed to happen so that Jesus could give us the Holy Spirit. Now, I will admit, I don't know why that's true. I just know that that's true because Jesus said it. I don't know why Jesus needed to be physically gone for the Spirit to be given to his people, but that's what he said in John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, Nevertheless, I am telling you, it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, the one who Jesus sent, who convicted the world about sin and righteousness and judgment after he ascended, is the Holy Spirit. We know that from the rest of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is this counselor, and Jesus says, I I need to go so that I can give you the Holy Spirit. Number eight, the the ascension was part of Jesus' offering himself to God for us. The ascension was part of Jesus offering himself to God for us. Now, this is a weird one, and I think it's not one that we think about very often. Maybe you never have. There's, I think there's a connection between Jesus ascending to heaven and Jesus offering himself to God on our behalf. The reason I think that's an unusual connection to make is because I think most of us would say that Jesus offered himself on our behalf at the crucifixion, right? If somebody were to say, when did Jesus sacrifice himself for us? When did Jesus offer himself for us on our behalf? I think most of us who are Christians would say, when he died on the cross for our sins. And I think that's correct. I think that's probably the way we should answer the question most of the time. But the writer of Hebrews makes a connection not just to the crucifixion being the time that he offered himself to us, but the ascension, that he actually went into heaven and offered himself to God on our behalf there. Which makes sense because if you think back to the Old Testament, there kind of was, at least for some of the sacrifices, like the one that was on the Day of Atonement, there sort of was a two-stage deal to the offering of the sacrifice. There was the moment that the sacrifice was killed, right? There's the moment that the animal was slaughtered. And then they took the blood from the animal, and then in a kind of a separate event, they went into the most holy place of the temple and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Remember that? So there was the moment of the sacrifice, and then there was the moment of the offering in the most holy place. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus did that. Jesus did both of those things. So I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. He's talking about what they did in the Old Testament, right? The high priests in the temple or in the tabernacle. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest, he's referring to Jesus there, also to have something to offer, right? He he made an offering as a high priest on our behalf. Now look at the next verse. This is super interesting. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Isn't that interesting? So in order to be priest, he needed to go there. In order to be our faithful high priest, there's some reason why he needed to go there and offer a gift. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Why? Since there are those offering gifts prescribed by the law. We already had earthly priests that did that. Earthly priests that stayed on earth in an earthly tabernacle that did all that. Like that was the thing that was already going on. That's not what he did. He did something bigger and better than that. 
If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. There are already those. Verse 5, these, and these being the earthly priest, the earthly tabernacle, that whole system, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. The writer of Hebrews is saying, we had a first covenant where priests went into this holy place in the temple on earth, and now we have someone who has gone not into, and this is interesting, he says, not into the temple that is a copy of the true one, but did something far more superior than that. He went to the real one and offered himself for us. He continues to talk about that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's not talking about that room in the back of the temple or that room in the back of the tabernacle. He's talking about something that was not made with hands and is not a part of this creation. And he entered that place. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves like the priests did, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Later on, same chapter, it says this, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins as our sacrifice and then went to, this is the ascension, went to the most holy place of all, the holy place that the holy place on earth was just a copy of, and he actually made the offering there where it counts forever. Number nine, the ascension happened so that Jesus could prepare a place for us. It happened so that Jesus could prepare a place for us. John 14, verse 2, this is a pretty famous verse. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. The ascension happened so Jesus could prepare a place for us. Now, there are a lot of Christians that take this to mean, at least this is what I feel like I've heard a lot, He's going to prepare a place for us like he's going there to like build mansions for us in heaven. Have you heard this before? Right? That he's going there and apparently he, I don't know why, he created the whole world in like seven days, but he needs to take a long time to build every little condo for everybody who's going to go to heaven one day, right? And so there he is and like heaven is like this condo complex and he's just, you know, hammering away. And, uh, and I've heard people say stuff like, you know, oh, I did a good deed yesterday. I bet you Jesus is putting a back porch on my mansion right now, okay? Because he's there preparing a place for us that it's for some reason going to take a long time for him to set up this kind of eternal vacation for us, but that's what he's doing, right? He's, the second coming is waiting on him getting everything just right for us, and we're waiting, and there he is, you know, vacuuming and fluffing the pillows. Is that what he meant by I go to prepare a place for you? I, don't, I doubt it, but it's, eh, it's possible. I, I doubt it. I think that I go to prepare a place for you may very well refer to some of the things we have already talked about in the first eight points, that he is reigning over his church. How is he preparing a place for us? By ruling over his church now, by interceding for us now, by saving people now, by offering himself on our behalf and appearing before God even now for us. That's how he's preparing a place for us. And then number 10, this might be my favorite one. Jesus ascended 
so that he may return. Jesus ascended so that he may return. The connection between the ascension and the return of Christ is actually not a connection that I, just I'm making. Like Luke's version of the story connects these two events. Right? The, 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 the angels actually said it that way. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, they're standing there, Jesus ascended, and then the angels that are there say this. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So the connection between the ascension and the second coming was made there right at the beginning. This, the way he's going shows you the way he's coming. Jesus could not have had a second coming if the first coming never ended, right? Jesus could not have a second coming if the first coming never ended. And the first coming did not end at his death because he rose again. The first coming ended at his ascension. And the second coming is when he comes back. And so this is what I want you to understand. I believe this is true. Jesus went from heaven to earth. That's the incarnation. We celebrate that at Christmas time. He went from earth to heaven. That's the ascension, which I'm preaching on right now. He is one day going to go from heaven back to earth. That's the second coming. And then, and this is the controversial part, but I'm going to say it anyway because I don't care and I just want to say it. He, the earthly one who has now gone to heaven, is now coming from heaven back to earth, I believe, to bring heaven down to earth. He is coming from heaven to earth, and I think he's coming to bring heaven to earth. Now, I say that because I believe it, and I say that that it's controversial because I am aware in a room this size, there are going to be some of you here who have never heard that before, right? Probably many of you who have never heard that before, that Jesus is going to bring heaven to earth, and, and there's going to be a certain percentage of you who have never heard it before who are going to assume I am wrong because that's what you assume whenever you hear something you've never heard before, right? Isn't that true? There's a certain, some of you have a certain personality type, you know who you are, <laughs> that when you hear something for the first time, your knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, that's not true. How do you know it's not true? Well, I've never heard that before. It can't be true. Like, I think I've heard all the true things, right? And so the fact that I've never heard that means it's not true. So I'm, and, and so I know there's some of you that are like that, and I don't care. I'm totally fine with it. In fact, I'm not even trying to rebuke you very harshly. I also have a personality just like that, okay? I doubt things the first time I hear them also, okay? Especially Bible things. If I hear some Bible teacher say something from the Bible I'd never heard before, that, my first thought is, well, that can't be correct. Like, I've never heard that. I'm pretty sure I know all the correct things by now, okay? So it might be a defect in our personality. We might need to repent, like of arrogance. But whatever it may be, point is, there are some of you that you're not, this is the first time you've heard it. You're not going to believe me. I don't care, okay? I'm going to say it. You're going to reject it, and that's fine. We've got to get the first one out of the way. Because there are, there are some of you in this room who you're going to say, that's not true. I've never heard it. And then a few years from now, someone else is going to preach the same thing. And on that day, you're going to go, well, maybe. I've heard that before. And then a few years later, someone else is going to teach this same thing, and you're going to go, yeah, I knew that was in the Bible, okay? <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm, if you walk out of here not believing me, I'm fine. I will have done my job because I got the first one out of the way. So here we go. Why do I believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth, then earth to heaven, and then is coming from heaven to earth to bring heaven to earth? And so this is what I think. I think when he's coming back, he is going to judge the world. He is going to get rid of... Every single person who does not believe in him, like they will be judged forever, punished forever. They will be, that he will judge the world and punish evil. And then those who belong to him 
will be resurrected and live in this renewed earth that is like heaven on earth. Why do I believe that he's going to judge the world and then bring heaven to earth? Let me just give you three passages real quick. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 17. This is Peter, one of the first... I mean, this is a really early sermon in church history. Jesus had just ascended, like, I don't know, probably maybe less than a month earlier. Really early teaching. And Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, says to his fellow Jews, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance. He's saying brothers. He's talking to his fellow countrymen. He says, I know you did it in ignorance. The it there is the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? You killed the Messiah because you didn't know it was the Messiah, okay? I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, has, he has fulfilled in this way, right? This, it had to happen this way, so it did, right? He, he fulfilled it in this way, and the way he fulfilled it is you all killed him. But, but you didn't know he was the Messiah. So what should you do now that you realize that you killed the Messiah? Verse 19, therefore, repent and turn back. You got to change your mind. Those of you who have been opposed to Jesus now need to repent and become people who are pro-Jesus, right? It's time to repent. It's it's time to stop opposing the Messiah and accept him. You need to repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Now, Now, this sounds like how Christians talk, right? You didn't believe in Jesus. You rejected him. Now you need to accept him. And so that your sins will be forgiven, but usually we say so that your sins will be forgiven so you can go to heaven one day when you die. Not what Peter says though, does he? Look, you need to, you need to repent and turn back so that your sins may be out, wiped out that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying you need to believe in Jesus so your sins will be forgiven so that seasons of refreshing come from the Lord in heaven down here. And that he may send Jesus. You need to repent and be forgiven so that, so that God will send Jesus back who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him. That's the ascension, right? When heaven welcomed him. And heaven will continue to welcome him. When? This is interesting. It doesn't say until you go to be with him. It says heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things. That is not the way we present the gospel nowadays, is it? Peter said you need to repent so that your sins will be forgiven so that the seasons of refreshing can come here, so that Jesus can come here and restore all things. So repent and believe in Jesus. That's that's a really early Christian sermon. That's what they were teaching. That's what Peter believed was was happening. You can also see this in Philippians. This is a verse I read last week, but you may not have caught the implications of it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul is talking here, and he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And then notice what he says next. It's not our citizenship is in heaven and we're going to go there where we're citizens. That's not how the verse, in this, that's not the focus of this verse. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will, when, when he comes here, he will take us there. No, look, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Paul thought that Jesus was going to come from heaven back down to here and transform his people's bodies into bodies that are glorious like Jesus' body, bodies that are not capable of disease or pain or injury or death. Can you imagine a world where the only people on the world are God's people who love him and follow him and they are in bodies that never die and never hurt and never get diseases? That sounds like heaven on earth. 
Well, heaven on. Okay, you can't. You must be making that up, Mario. One, one more verse. Just want to do one more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. The Apostle John has a vision of the future. And this is what he sees happening in the future. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's interesting. Not just heaven. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. So there's something about the old heaven and the old earth that are no more. And I don't, I don't know that that means they're absolutely obliterated out of existence. I think it very well could mean like a renewed earth, that they, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and that, that which was true about the old heaven and the old earth, that has passed away now. I think Randy Alcorn says it, that it's a new earth, not a non-earth, Okay. So there is this, so there's this new heaven and this new earth, and the way things were is gone. Now, what is the relationship between this, this vision he sees of the new heaven and new earth? What's the relationship between heaven and earth? Look at the next verse. I also saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, which we think, oh, we're going to go up there, right? No, look at it says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, from heaven to earth new heaven to new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. So we learned the story of the ascension, that Jesus ascended into heaven. Why does the ascension matter? It explains why Jesus isn't here anymore. It explains where he is now. It demonstrates God's power. It implies that Jesus has finished his job. It shows in another sense that Jesus has not finished his job since he is still working even while he's up here, up there. It shows that Jesus is exalted and entered into his glory. It needed to happen so that Jesus could give us the Holy Spirit. It was a part of Jesus offering himself to God for us. It happened so that Jesus could prepare a place for us. And Jesus ascended so that he may return. And we praise God for all these things. We worship him for all these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I, I bet there are people in this room that are maybe even for the first time realizing that you and what you have prepared for us and what you are doing now is better than they even thought. So we thank you. We thank you for the surprise. We thank you for your word. We thank you for ascending to heaven, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for taking him up into heaven. We thank you, Jesus, for interceding for us right now. We thank you for reigning right now. We look forward to your return. And we thank you that the future that you have planned for us is a good one and not a bad one. That you care for us, that you would wipe our sins out and make things as they ought to be. We thank you. I pray that you would help us to feel the way we should feel and believe the way we should believe and act the way we should act in light of this. We worship you. We worship you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what you're going to do. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.